This is episode 498 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The title of this message is, Do You Believe the Promises of God? And quite honestly, this question is what separates those who live their Christian life on the bottom rung from those who experience what we've been talking about, the higher Christian life. It's all based on faith, your faith. Do you believe the promises of God, not just specific doctrines or creeds about God, not what God has done for others, but do you, especially you, make it personal, believe the promises of God? Do you believe what he says he will do? Do you believe what he says about you? Do you believe the consequences of disobeying him? And do you believe in the blessings promised by being in Christ? In short, do you believe? Now, your answer will either be yes or no, or sometimes but it all depends on the promise. But that view of God impugns his character. After all, he is either trustworthy or not. He either tells the truth or he spins it to fit his own narrative. He is either perfect and pure or shady like some of our friends. There is no middle ground. We either believe or we don't, and the consequences of our choices are profound. So join us as we look at a few promises of God to help our faith grow in our quest for the higher Christian life by leaving Laodicea behind. We've been, uh, been talking recently quite a lot over the last couple of weeks, and especially the stuff I've, stuff I've been sending out to you daily regarding the importance of living a higher Christian life, or a Christian life in which the Holy Spirit lives great in you. It's uh, a lot like salvation. In other words, the process is extremely simple, because God has done all the work. God has, like in salvation, God has redeemed us, God has sacrificed his son for our sins. God has raised his son for our justification. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, interceding for us. And all we have to do is believe or place our faith or our trust in what Christ has already done. It's a simple process, but it's very difficult. Not complicated, but it's difficult. Getting saved is easy. Living the sanctified Christ-like life, as you know, is quite difficult. But this higher Christian life that we've talked about, this ability to live above the throes of sin, even your besetting sins that have become part of your personality, part of your character, part of your sincerely held convictions that maybe keep you from experiencing him in the way that he wanted you to, the, the... The victory to that, again, is based on faith. It's trusting him and what he claims in his word, what he promises in his word, and it's all obtainable by faith. So as we look at this today on this Easter Sunday morning, I want you to remember at the onset that the only thing, literally the only thing standing between you and the kind of Christian life that you've always dreamed of of the kind of Christian life that you know God has provided for you, is faith. Faith in the completed work of Christ. With that beginning, let me pray. 
Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come and worship you on a day that the church historically has set aside to remember the resurrection, to remember the empty tomb, remember all the events that took place, like Justice shared, the, the simple things that, that for some reason you decided to include in your word for our edification of this, the folding of the, of the cloth. Oh, and all the things that transpired back then. But even then, seeing the empty tomb, knowing the prophecies, Lord, the disciples that were closest to him didn't believe. And us today, many of us, even knowing all the things we know about you, still struggle with disbelief. That yes, God, you would do these amazing things for other people who we deem more worthy than we are. Lord, but there's no one worthy but you. Lord, would you instill in us a desire for more of you, a desire to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to, to be able to have a relationship with you like we have a relationship with everybody else, that we have confidence in being able to have a conversation, receive instructions, and be able to please you and see the smile on your face. Father, in Jesus' name, would you... Find to rebuke Satan from our gathering right now. Would you take care of everything in the spirit domain? And Lord, would you fill us so that we can truly understand more about you? And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Easter. And on Easter, what we expect to hear is a sermon on the resurrection. And if you're like me and you've been in church um, pretty much your whole life, you've heard many dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons on the resurrection. But that's, that's what happens at Easter. We preach a sermon on the resurrection, and we can hopefully somehow as a pastor, their job is to give you some sort of little nuance to make the sermon that you heard last year or the year before or from somebody else at another church seem just a little more interesting. So we walk out the door with a deeper cognitive knowledge about the resurrection. We do the same thing at Christmas. We always preach about the um, birth narratives of Jesus, and you know we try to figure something out. And you know the story. You you know the story. Now we can talk about some of the details you might know, or some conjectures we can come out, up with. But but we know the story. We know the story about the empty tomb. We know the story about uh, the women that were down there, and they see the stone rolled away. We heard Roberta share the story with the kids yesterday, and. We know that story. We know that uh, the disciples didn't understand, and Peter and John run to the tomb, and John stops at the door, and Peter bumbles on in and uh, sees everything has been described. And we know that they cowered in the upper room until Jesus showed up. And even then, you didn't find Peter in the presence of Jesus coming up and embracing him. He was still ashamed because of his sin. I just denied him. He'll never forgive me. Thomas wasn't there, and then Thomas doubted him. I and mean, we we see all that. But one thing that sometimes we miss about Easter is what it means, what it provides for us, not just necessarily eternally, but what it provides for us right now. And if you think about it, the meaning of Easter is really tied up in a passage in Romans chapter 4, which is kind of strange because it's not the gospel accounts, but if you would, go ahead to Romans chapter 4 and let's look at this because this really is the Easter story that also applies to us today in our everyday life. And it talks about this righteousness that was imputed to us by faith 
as the righteousness was imputed to Abraham by faith from Genesis 15. We're going to look at this rather slowly because it's of profound importance as we're striving for more of an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit for you to grasp how this is obtained. Romans chapter 4. Now, you're going to find a lot of pronouns here, a lot of he's and him's and it's, and so what I've done to make it easy for us, as I've, since we're kind of taking this without reading the whole chapter, I'm defining for us who the pronouns relate to. He, stories about Abraham, did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. God gave him a promise, just like he's given you. And just like he's given me, he's given us a promise regarding salvation. He's giving us a promise regarding sanctification. He's given us promises about the intimacy with the Holy Spirit. He's given us promises about taking uh, his yoke upon us, learning from him. He's given us tons of promises. Some of those promises we blow off. Some of those promises we don't care about. Some of those promises we don't even think in our heart of hearts apply to us because maybe we've committed in our mind the unpardonable sin. But nevertheless, Abraham, when he was given a promise, a really bizarre promise, an illogical promise, did not waver through unbelief. Faith is what opens the door in a spiritual life. Unbelief shuts it tight. But he was strengthened, not in proof, but he was strengthened in faith. I'm going to believe the promise. Even though I don't see it, even though it doesn't make any logical sense, even though it seems absolutely bizarre, really insane when you think about it, I am going to believe the promise. I'm strengthened in faith. And since I'm strengthened in faith, I'm going to do two things. It says in Romans 4, I'm going to give glory to God because he is trustworthy and he's faithful and he's great and he's magnanimous and I'm going to give glory to God and I am fully convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, fully convinced that what he promised, he was able to also perform. In other words, God is not an impotent God. God is not someone who makes promises. Again, one of the biggest stumbling blocks for me coming to Christ was my dad. My dad was the only father that I knew. My dad made tons of promises. My dad never kept them. If it benefited him to keep a promise he gave to my brother and I, then he would do it. If it didn't benefit him, then he wouldn't, and we would just have to hang out in the abyss. And so I learned that that's what fathers do. That's how fathers are. You can't really trust them. They're all kind of narcissistic. It's always about them. And then I come to the Word of God, and I'm Jesus is presenting God as a father, and I'm superimposing my personal experience on him not how it works. Abraham was fully convinced, irrespective of how his father treated him or what he'd learned from his culture, I'm fully convinced that God, if he makes a promise, is able to perform what he promises. He's able to follow through. If he says he's going to do this, God can do this. Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? Do you believe that whatever God promises, he can do? Doesn't necessarily mean he will do, but he can do. That's the first avenue of faith we have to conquer. And therefore, because Abraham believed this, it, and the it here is Abraham's faith, 
it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything to receive the pleasure of God. He didn't do anything for this righteousness to be imputed to him. Impute means to account or reckon. It means I'm basically, it's not yours, but I'm going to assume it's yours. So I've got all this money over here and I'm going to place it in your account. I'm going to, let's say it's, it now belongs to you. It's not yours by possession, but it's yours by gift. So I'm going to take my righteousness and account it and impute it and impart it to you. Simply based on Abraham's faith on his promise. Now, this promise comes from Genesis 15, and it's kind of a bizarre story. In Genesis 15, we find out that God told Abraham he's going to have a son, and Abraham goes, I died. There's no way. I'm old. My wife is old. Genetics are working against us. I mean, uh, her womb doesn't work anymore, and I'm an old man, uh, older than just really old, and there's no way that's going to happen. So, oh, I got how you're going to work this out. Because since I actually don't have a physical son, Eleazar, my chief servant, in our law and our tradition says that if I don't have a male son to pass everything on to, I can let Eleazar basically be my kind of my adopted son. So that's what you mean. He's going to be my heir. Got it, God. I figured it out in my mind. Now it makes logical sense to me. This is where that phrase came from. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying this, this one, no, 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 Eliezer shall not be your heir. There's no miracle in that. There's nothing to place your faith on that. That's, that's just a natural progression of life. But one will come from your own body, your own physical child, with your own DNA. That will be your son. Your heir. It's impossible. I'm an old man. My, my wife's an old woman. We're way, way past uh, childbearing years. We have prayed for 50, 60 years for a child, and you said no, and now all of a sudden, this is supposed to happen to us? Then God, note this, God brought him outside. Now, how did that happen? Abraham, would you follow me up, please? Okay, well, I, I don't know. Somehow Abraham knew that God wanted him to leave where he was and go outside in this, this beautiful night where it's just stars shining everywhere. And God says to him, wouldn't you like to have a relationship like this? You've got a conversation going on with God? Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. All right, that's a promise, God, that you just made me. That's a promise that makes no logical sense. I'd already figured it out how it can happen with Eleazar, a really good guy here. And I, 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 he's like my son. But you say that something's going to happen bizarre, something that's going to happen physically impossible, that I and my wife are going to, have a child, and my descendants in my old age are going to be as numerous as the stars that I can count in the sky? Abraham, you have a choice. Steve, you have a choice. You have a choice to believe God's word or not, to go your own way or trust him. But he was firmly convinced that God is able to perform what he promised. And therefore, Abraham believed in the Lord. And he, 
God. This was God's judicial action. Because of Abraham's belief, God accounted it to him for righteousness, which is the exact same quote here that Paul is using in Romans chapter 4, talking about salvation. Back to Romans, passage we already looked at. And he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that God is not a liar, God is not a deceiver, that God does what he says he's going to do and has the power to do even abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. And therefore, Abraham's faith, our faith in believing God to be true, he accounts to us for righteousness. It continues. Now it, we're talking about the Genesis account now, what I just read to you, it was not written for his sake alone. This account of how God dealt with Abraham was not written as an encouragement just for Abraham. But there's a principle here that Paul wants us to know through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that applies to us today. It was not written for his sake alone and that this righteousness was imputed to him, to Abraham. But it was also imputed to us. It was also written for our benefit. For it, and this is the righteousness now, shall be, that's a future term here, shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. This righteousness from God will be imputed to those people who believe that in God who raised up Jesus from the dead, and here's this Easter part of this, first the crucifixion, who was delivered up because of our offenses. He was crucified because of our sins. Watch this. And was raised, was resurrected because of our justification. Wow. I hadn't thought about that before. But the purpose, the purpose of the resurrection was for your and mine justification. That he was, we know he was crucified for our sins and offenses, but he was also resurrected for our justification. Justification is a judicial legal act where God himself looks at me with all my sins, looks at you with everything you've ever done, and said, I am declaring him righteous. I am imputing to Steve the righteousness of my son. When I see Steve, I don't see Steve's sin. I see this righteousness of my son. Hence, I can go boldly before the throne of God, covered in the righteousness, the holiness, the purity, the sinlessness of Christ. In Romans chapter 4, it says, Jesus died for our sins, but raised us up for our justification. Listen very carefully. You and I are not declared righteous because of things we've done. This is not a work salvation where if you cross off the 10 items you have to do each day and you do that like for three years in a row without faltering, that somehow you've made yourself holy enough for God to love you. It doesn't work that way. This righteousness is imputed to us and it's the righteousness of Christ by nothing more than faith. Faith in him who raised up Jesus from the dead, 
faith in him, like in Abraham, was firmly convinced of those promises. It's all acquired and imputed to you and received by faith, just like Abraham. This is the Easter story. This is what we look at. We, we celebrate once a year. We really should do it a lot more, primarily on the this particular Sunday that kind of rotates on our calendar, we celebrate this wonderful act where Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, what does that mean? Well, he conquered death. Got it. What else does it mean? Uh, he walked around like for uh, 40 days and met a lot of people, and Paul talks about that. And then in Acts chapter 1, he was ascended into heaven. Got that. What else? God proved that he was the Messiah by conquering death. And Okay, got that. What else? We, uh, when I was growing up, we always dressed up really nice, and my mom had gloves on and a hat. Remember that? That uh, when, we were, when we were younger and our kids were much younger, we always dressed them up in really nice Easter outfits. Do you remember that? Some of you could afford that. Karen had to make ours, you know, and dress them all up. They would go to church and... Okay, but what else? After church, we always get together and have a big dinner with families. As a matter of fact, some people don't even come to church on Easter because they're too busy cooking because having the meal at 12 o'clock is more important than coming to church and worship the Lord. I'm so thankful that you're here. Anything else? Yeah. He was raised up for our justification. He was raised up for God to judicially and legally say, I am not guilty any longer that uh, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me, that it's justification just as if I never sinned. All that because of his resurrection. It's like a, an additional add-on to what we think about him paying the penalties for our sins with his crucifixion. That is what Easter is all about. Okay. But it doesn't end there doesn't end there. See, Easter is an act that happened that we got saved and we'll really reap the benefits of that, of course, when we die. Because we always think about, you know, we're saved now, so when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, but how do you live now? Well, I live now knowing I'm going to go to heaven, and so therefore, I guess I can live happy now because I know if I die, I'm going to go with Jesus. Okay, but how are you living now? What kind of happiness do you have now? What kind of power of the Holy Spirit do you have in your life now? How are you emulating Christ now, because he not only died for our justification, but he became for us sanctification. Again, what is sanctification? It's really simple. Sanctification is a theological word that means you are sanctified, you are set apart. God looks at you and says, you know, from all the morass and the lost people out there and the crazy stuff going on and the evil in the world, I'm going to set apart this person, place my spirit in them, and I'm going to pre preserve them and hold them out for a holy purpose, a righteous person purpose. So myself and the person of the Holy Spirit will live large and they will be light in the world and salt on the earth. That's the kind of person they're going to be. One of the most chilling verses I've found in the last 10 years is this one, 1 Corinthians 1.30. I, I discovered this as I was writing, leaving Laodicea, and it changed everything. What is Christ to me? What has Christ done? But of him, God's action, this is election, because of God the Father, I am in Christ Jesus. It's not me, 
It's him. And if I'm in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? That he became for me. Christ became for me wisdom from God, which is the purpose of leaving Laodicea, and righteousness. I got that, that imputed righteousness, the righteousness that comes from Christ, the Abraham kind of righteousness. And he became sanctification. He became my ability to live righteously. He became for me the higher Christian life, the closer to Jesus Christian life, the, the bearing more fruit Christian life, the well done, good and faithful servant Christian life. He became that for me just as much as he became wisdom, just as much as he became righteousness, and just as much as I've received my redemption in him. It's not like God does all these eternal things, like justify me, but when it comes to sanctification, I'm hanging out there on my own. That he actually became for us all of them. It's a package. It's it's. God's righteousness and the ability to live out that righteousness on a daily basis and be able to not grieve the Holy Spirit and experience him in such a profound way that it changes everything in our life. He now is the source of anything good in us. He's the source of our ability to, to live a holy life, which is what the higher Christian life is really all about. It's about saying no to the things that grieve him and yes to the things that please him. And living when you're, with yourself when you fail. Here's the question. Three weeks now, I've been sending these daily things out. I've talked to a lot of you. A lot of you have said, well, you know, I want this higher Christian life, and I pray and fail. I pray and fail. I don't know what we're expecting, but whatever it is, it ain't happening. I pray, and you know, I expected, I don't know what, uh, speaking tongues. I expected some uh, picture of Jesus in front of me. I expected car horn to blow. I expected something to happen that I could basically say that my faith is based on that. And you know, we talked about that you can't seek signs. It's not about signs. You don't seek signs when you get saved. It's by faith. It's by trusting what he says without seeing signs. Faith is stepping out just on trust. So how is that done? I mean, how, how do we truly receive this sanctification that God has provided for us? I'm going to read you three stories and combine them for you. The first one is in Matthew chapter 8. These are all found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not found in John. It's all found here because it was a profound event that took place in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, it begins right after the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount ends, first miracle, here's what it says. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Follow with me. When you come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. There's two people here, two groups of people. There are the multitudes that follow him, which makes up most of us. Hey, this is pretty cool. Show us something else, Jesus. This is really nice. I'm kind of excited about what's going on. Boy, this is the neatest thing I've ever seen. Verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him. Multitudes followed him. One man came to him. Big difference. Doesn't say the multitudes came to him. Just this leper. And when he come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came 
and worshipped him, not the multitudes, they're not worshipping him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, all right. Then Mark shares the same story. Let's see what Mark has to say. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Did Mark add some details that Matthew left out? Can we get a little clearer picture of what's happening here? Here's what Mark says. Now a leper came to him, imploring him. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Kneeling down to him. Matthew said he worshipped. Mark tells us the, the posture he took in worship. Kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion. Well, that lets us know why he's doing this. Stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing be cleansed, and as soon as he had spoken, immediately, not gradual, immediately the leprosy, leprosy left him, and he was cleansed, and he strictly warned him and sent him away at once, and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things Moses commanded as a testimony to them, to the priest. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely, to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in the deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. All right. But there's also an account of this in Luke. I want to understand exactly what's happening in this miracle. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city, we found out later the city's Capernaum, that behold, a man, remember Luke was a physician, so Luke's descriptions are a little more exact when it comes to medical maladies. He says that this man was not just a leper, but he was full of leprosy. I don't suggest you do this, but I uh, googled leprosy. And I looked at the images, and I started looking at pictures of current people who suffer from leprosy. And I had it on my computer screen, and Karen came in, and her first response was, you, you can't show that on Sunday. They honestly looked like cast members from The Walking Dead. And that's what they were considered back then, walking dead. Said so that there was a man who was full of leprosy, saw Jesus, and he fell down on his face. Wow and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and then, of course, there's the warning that Jesus gave. Lord, what do you want to show us here? I mean, as I was looking at this, to share with you a strange message on Easter Sunday, is it not? What are, we, what are we trying to learn here? Let's put them all together. See if we can get a clear picture of the entire event that takes place here. And I want you to picture in your mind what this must have been like. So when he come down from the mountain, Matthew tells us great multitudes followed him. And so we're probably in those multitudes. We're not really committed to Christ. We're not going to sell everything and join Christ. But he's popular. He's interesting. He's made our life better. Maybe he fed us with 
you know, a couple loaves and fishes, and, and that was pretty exciting. Maybe we saw a miracle take place, and boy, that was something to talk about. It's like a real big magic show, and we really enjoyed his teaching, but we're following him from afar. We're not approaching him. We're just kind of looking at him. We have our own life to do. I don't want to get too close to this guy, because I get too close to this guy. He, he demands a lot from us. I will share this with you later on today, but uh, yesterday... Uh, yesterday, uh, I had an opportunity to see a sneak peek preview of episode, episode one of The Chosen Season 2 that's launched today. And one of the things Jesus says in that is he says, from those people who follow me, I ask a lot. But from those people who don't, I ask very little. I can almost picture that here with this multitude following. We're following because we're going to church on Easter. We're following because that's the right thing to do. We're following because we claim to be a Christian, but we're not coming to Jesus. We're not. When you come down from the mountain, the great multitudes followed him. And behold, this man showed up who was full of leprosy. He was hopeless. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by the the religious establishment at that time, it was illegal for him to even come to Jesus. He was literally the walking dead. He had to stay three meters away from normal people on a normal day. And if the wind was blowing and it was blowing to his back, so some of the leprosy that he had would, would actually blow or the stench on other good people, he had to stay 35 feet away from those people. They locked them up in leper colonies. They still do. He had to keep his arm over his face like this and yell, unclean, 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 whenever he even came around somebody in the Walmart parking lot, because nobody could possibly look at him. His family rejected him. The day he was declared unclean as a leper, he never once from that point on received a human touch from anybody, anybody. And when he came to a crowd, the crowd was so upset with him that many times they would throw rocks at him or stone him to get him to go away. If it was a father who was in his late 20s, contracted leprosy, whose wife just gave birth to a little girl, he never saw her again unless she came to visit him at a distance in a leper colony. Can you imagine and this guy didn't care. He didn't care. Everybody else has needs. All the people that are following Jesus have needs. They have needs for victory over their sin and their selfishness and their desire for one-upmanship, just like we do. And yet this leper, who everybody could see his sin and his need, this leper comes to Jesus, who's full of leprosy, and came and worshipped him. The crowd didn't worship him. They came to church every Sunday and just went through the motions. But they didn't worship him. Why? I don't know. Jesus is good and he's my Lord and Savior. But, and, I, and, I, and I call on him when I need something. But pretty much I got my own life, my own goals, my own things that I want to do. I'm doing things my way. I don't have time to worship anybody because if I worship him and abject worship like this man did, then it means my relationships would have to change. Maybe my business practices would change. My personal habits would change. My sin would have to be eradicated. Because every time I draw closer to Christ, just by being with him, all of a sudden I, I realize how truly sinful I am. This leper knew how sinful he was. He had gone through, as we talked about last week, this 
self-examination process where you've asked the Holy Spirit to look at your life and show you what's offensive to the Holy Spirit, which to him is like leprosy on us. And when he had come down from the mountain, behold, great multitudes followed him like you and I. And behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and came and worshipped him. Well, did he worship him like we worship? Did he sit in a chair, maybe stand, but sometimes you're tired to stand, so you don't stand, and you know, sing. Sometimes we sing, sometimes we don't. Not really gusty. We just kind of, you know, mouth the words, and maybe we raise our hands and look around, make sure everybody else is doing it. If we don't, we don't. I mean, does he worship like us? No, he fell on his face and begged him. Begged him. Lord, please, please, please. I have no one to go to but you. There's no one that can that can take away the stench of my sin but you. I've been rejected by everybody that I've known, my parents, the church, my own family, my wife, my children, my brothers and sisters. Will you reject me too? Kneeling down to him, says, Lord, if you are willing, this is faith now, you can make me clean. Really? Clean you of your leprosy? That's even a bigger miracle than being an old man and a woman and having a kid. Really? So you really believe this? This is not, um, this is not a question. Lord, uh, I don't know if you're willing, I don't know if you're able or not, but if by some chance you are able, I guess you can clean. Someone's talking about it here. This man, this man, this leper recognized who he was and went to the only source of healing and said, I know if you want to, you can heal me. I know that you can set my life right. I know that you can rid me of these besetting sins that rob me of intimacy with you and grieve your spirit. I know you can do that. This is faith. Faith that is reckoned to righteousness. I know you can do this. Then Jesus Moved with compassion, Mark tells us. Do you think he has compassion for you? Or does he only have compassion for this leper? He didn't know this leper. He didn't know what his life was like. He hadn't followed this leper. This leper may have just been a real pagan, you know. And I mean, who knows anything about this leper? It doesn't say that he was a great spiritual man. And nevertheless, Jesus had compassion. He always has compassion. He has compassion on any one of his children who come to him with a need and have the faith that says, God, I'm trusting in you because I know you're the only one that can fix me. I believe you can do this. Move with compassion. Jesus then did something that was not necessary. So many times Jesus healed people by speaking the word. To the man who was lowered through the... Uh, through the house, carried by four friends. Uh, pick up your mat and go home. I'm not waving my hand over you. I'm not touching you. I'm not even helping you up. I'm not doing anything. I'm just telling you. Pick up your mat and go home. And he did. This is different. This, he not only had compassion on him to cure him of his leprosy, but he reached out and gave him something that man had not received. And if he's full of leprosy, this multiple years, had not received and since he was declared unclean. Since you determined in your life, and Satan whispered in your ear, that there's no way you're going to have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit because you have sin in your life, you refuse to give up. You're unclean. 
Jesus says, no. Not to him. And he reached out and touched him. Touched him. And he said, I am willing to answer your prayer. As a matter of fact, it sounds almost blasphemous. But this man's faith, positioned in such a way that it's almost as if Jesus could not help but answer that prayer. I am willing. Be cleansed. He didn't have to touch him, but he did. And he did it for compassion. Jesus was willing to do the impossible for this leper. And he's also willing to do what you think is impossible to your life today. To free you from besetting sins. As soon as he had spoken, Mark says, immediately the leprosy left him. And he was cleansed. I want you to note this. This was not a gradual thing. This was not, okay, I've told you what to do. Now you go out there and try really hard, you know, scrub really hard to get those festering scabs off. And then if you get in a jam, call me back and we'll meet next Thursday for a counseling session. This wasn't gradual. This wasn't progressive. It was immediate. Immediate. That's who God is. which is exactly the same way the Lord wants to work with you. Now listen very carefully. This is where your faith comes in. This is, you have the faith and believe his word, you can walk out of here with victory. If you rely on your past failures or your, I don't have that much kind of faith, then you will walk out of here exactly the way you came in, which is really sad, really sad. Look at this passage. We all know it. 1 John 1, 9. Now I've got the verses before and after so we can look at it in context here. This is three if-then propositions. Here's the first one. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I got that. If-then proposition. Second one that we all know. If we confess our sins... Now it tells us about the one we're confessing our sins to. He is faithful and just to, number one, forgive us our sins, and number two, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Got that? How many people memorize this verse? We know it. Quote it all the time. Number three, if we say we have not sinned, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay. One we're going to focus on is the middle one here. 1 John 1, 9, it's an if-then proposition. If we do something, God promises to do two things. We do one thing, he does two things, and he does those two things because he is faithful and just. And here's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, number one, forgive us our sins. Now, this is where your faith comes in. I want to ask you honest truth here. Does this forgiveness take place instantaneously? Sure. Sure God doesn't make you prove yourself first. Sure God doesn't say, well, you know, I'm, 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 you know what, I'm not really forgiving you right now, but I'm open to the possibility of forgiving you if you do the next 10 days and don't irritate me again. If you mess up again in the next 10 days, then the forgiveness is off. Or is the forgiveness instantaneous? Honest question. Is it instantaneous? Okay. And, and why do we believe that? It's really simple because that's how God forgives sins. That's his nature. 
You know, he not only forgives sins, but he chooses not to remember them anymore, and he casts them as far away as the east is from the west. He throws them in this big deep sea. I mean, he does all these imageries about as soon as we confess the sins and we go back to God and ask him to and confess them again, he goes, what are you talking about? I've chosen not to remember those anymore. Okay. So we agree he forgives our sin instantaneously, right? It also says that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does he do that instantaneously? No. Why not? Well, because I keep messing up. Because I just, you know, I've asked him to forgive me of that, and then I find myself doing the same thing over again, and I got to the point I just quit asking him for doing that. So obviously, based on my experience, that this cleansing from all unrighteousness is a gradual thing, is something that's worked out over time that may or may not ever really take place. Now, where in the world are we basing that on in this passage? That somehow in this verse, God does one instantaneously, but the other one he doesn't? He does it gradually? Well, I know, but then, you know, I just... I just I think that if God would cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that I would never sin again. But since I am sinning, wait, wait, wait a second. You believe that God forgives you of your sins, and you don't think that means you're never going to sin again. It just means that his forgiveness is instantaneous. But we then assume that if he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that that means something forgiveness doesn't, that he turns us into some sort of robot, some cocoon that we can't do anything because he's going to force us to do what he wants us to do and violate your free will. Where does that come from? It comes from our failure to try to live a righteous life. Most of the time we try to live a righteous life in the flesh. But here's what the promise says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to do the things that we think happens instantaneously, forgiving our sins, and to also cleanse us from all unrighteousness that he will also do instantaneously. Instantaneously. It's gone. It's like it's a fresh slate. It's like I confessed my sins and I've asked him to forgive me my sins, and he remembers them no more. I've asked you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and he has. And the only way unrighteousness enters back into our life is when we allow it to. But you have now the power and the strength to have a fresh start with him. Not, I know my sins are forgiven because I still watch those stupid shows, and I know I'm going to do it again. It's all gone. It's wiped away. You now have the ability to live in righteousness with him. Maybe for the first time ever. And the only way we can do this is if we believe. You know, it's like, it's like how you perceive yourself. I'm just an old sinner, saved by grace. I, I, I don't want no house with Jesus. If he just let me live in a doghouse in the backyard, that'd be fine because... Boy, he's just so disappointed in me and he hates me so much because I mess up all the time and, and that's just who I am. And that's how you perceive yourself. And that's how you'll live your Christian life. And the Bible says you're a saint. Not only a saint, no, you're a saint that sins, but your nature is a saint, one cleansed from all unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, you're so cleansed from all unrighteousness, who still does occasionally sin, as 
until you can work through that. Since you are a saint, Jesus says you not only have access to the Father, but you're also a child of God, a son of God. You're an heir of God. As a matter of fact, since my righteousness is imputed to you, you're an heir of God equal with me. You're a joint heir with Christ. When you begin to see yourself as the Scripture talks about and believe that who you are, then when you wake up in the morning, you're not waking up in the morning planning on failing. You find that failing is contrary to who you are. You wake up in the morning planning on living in victory because my sins have been instantaneously forgiven when I confess them. And I'm cleansed from that unrighteousness instantaneously when I confess them. And I can confess them all day long. You see? So this Easter morning, in addition to rejoicing with Jesus and thanking him for the fact that the tomb is empty, we no longer have to fear death and he has defeated Satan and we are now justified with him. Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to spend a, a few minutes thanking him for the victory he's provided, not only out there, but right here, right now. Same victory that maybe we didn't take advantage of yesterday is the same victory that's available for us today, even if we choose not to take care of it, take advantage of it. The same victory provided tomorrow because he became for us sanctification. That is who Jesus is living in us. And that's the definition of the higher Christian life. I know, but I haven't answered the question about how it's done. Okay. Let me close with this. Remember the leper? What did he do? He quit following and came to Jesus. Big difference between following and coming to Jesus. If your spiritual life is limited to a psalm and a proverb a day and you know, some devotional book you do, and we'll see you again next Sunday. If your spiritual life is just something you put on the shelf, it's just something you go through, that you're too busy doing the things of the world, you're following Jesus. You're not coming to him. This man forsook everything, took great risk to himself to actually come to Jesus. There's a difference between following him and coming to him. And listen, Living a Christian life in this world is going to get increasingly more difficult than it is now. If you're not going to go all in, quit. Save yourself some heartache. If all you're going to do is follow from afar, then you're going to suffer some of the persecution that takes place. Eventually, you're going to apostatize the faith because it's going to get too difficult to live the Christian life. And you're going to receive none of the benefits in this life that makes it worth living. If you're going to do something, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's get involved. Let's be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's live this higher Christian life. This man came to Jesus as the only source of his healing. Lord, I have these sins in my life I can't get rid of, and I've traced them back to how it was. I, Lord, when I was a kid, I remember I found my dad's Playboy magazine. It was under, the, under my bed, and it, it just imprinted these images of women in my mind. And ever since then, I've been addicted to porn. I'm 47 years old right now, and I can't get rid of that. What, he doesn't know that? Man, that's leprosy. If your wife knew about that, your kids knew about that, your friends and neighbors knew about that, they would look at you as a man with oozing sores. 
I don't care. This is who I am. And I come to Christ and I bow my knees before him and I beg him, I implore him, full of leprosy, my doubt, my fear, my unforgiveness, whatever it is in your life, I'm begging you, God, if you're willing, I know, I know you can heal me. Because Christ is always willing. Always willing. Number two, he didn't become part of the crowd. He worshipped him unashamedly. Unashamedly. And I don't care what other people say. I don't care what other people think. This leper's coming up and bowing in front of Jesus. I don't care about the repulsion on the other disciples' face. I don't care about what people are. I don't care about anything. I just want to seek the Lord. I want to come to the Lord. And when I get in front of him, I recognize my sin and my need and his holiness. And it just elicits in us this worship. This worship. You worship him at home when you're alone? I mean, literally, worship him. Connect with him. Present yourself to him messed up as you are and ask him to cleanse you? Number three, he asked in faith. It's an amazing prayer. It's the same prayer that you need to pray as you're seeking a more intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. I know what your promise is, Lord. I know Jesus said, if I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to my kids, that Heavenly Father would give the Holy Spirit to me, and he's perfect. He's glorious. He's wonderful. And number four, just like everything else in your life spiritually, you must receive it. Just the way it's presented in the person of Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. I receive salvation. Don't earn it. I receive it. And I receive this intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I receive his power in my life. What I'm doing is I'm really opening up more of my life to him. God, you take control of my lips. You take control of my mind. You can take control of my eyes. Lord, the words that I say, the thoughts that I think, I want them to be your thoughts. And as soon as you have a bad thought, and you will, unless you're a much better person than I am, as soon as you have a bad thought, you confess that before him. And he immediately forgives you of that and cleanses you from that unrighteousness. And you will remain cleansed as long as you stay connected to the vine. If you disconnect yourself from the vine because of pride or arrogance or sin or the flesh, pretty much, then I've yanked my body. Was it Mo that did you do Romans 12, 1 and 2 today? I've yanked my body off the altar. Can't have it right now. I'll give it to you when I'm done. I need a little enjoyment. You know, if, if, you, if, if you yank yourself up or disconnect your branch from the vine, why? You will wither and die. But immediately you recognize that when you confess those sins, he instantaneously forgives you. And instantaneously from his vantage point cleanses you from all unrighteousness. The slate is clean. Until you and I choose to dirty it up again. And that's our choice. And that's how it works. Because you're empowered to be able to do that. Same Jesus who touched and healed this leper was willing and able to do the exact same thing to you today. And all you have to do is ask him. Just ask him. But if I do ask you, Lord, I'm going to fail. I, I, I can virtually guarantee it. I mean, if you will read Paul's letters, he struggled with it all the time. 
Things that I want to do, I don't do. Things that I don't want to do, I do. I, I, just, I, I don't have all this victory over this thing yet. Yeah, but you're moving towards that. You're, you're recognizing what Christ can do in you, what the Holy Spirit can do in you. It's not you with areas of your life the Holy Spirit doesn't want to touch. It's you opening up those doors. I'm a leper in this area, Lord. I can't stand it anymore. Please cleanse it. I know you can do it if you're willing. And the Holy Spirit says every time I am willing and you're cleansed and you're cleansed and you're cleansed and you're cleansed and you can live and walk in victory if you simply believe. Believe. So are you willing to do that today? I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to, to do anything that just breeds peer pressure. My wife stands. I guess I better stand too. I'm talking about that. What we're talking about is a desire. It's Easter Sunday. The empty tomb provided your justification. Jesus Christ said he became from you wisdom. He became from you for you redemption. He became for you sanctification. The Holy Spirit who lives in you is just that, holy, holy. And if you yield your life to him, even though you may fail on the way home, you yield your life to him, he will accept your offering. You confess your sins, that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness right now. He will, he will forgive you of your sins right now. And then it's like, you know, the guilt is gone. The pressure is gone. That my, my life has been cleansed by the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. I, I feel closer to him. I, I, I want to serve him more and love him more and get to know him more. The flesh will begin raising its ugly head again or your unsanctified imagination will. And then you just basically repress that or, or beat that down or confess that uh, and let the Holy Spirit deal with that. And when it raises its head to the point that you give in to it, ah, and the Holy Spirit's grieved, grieved you practice spiritual breathing, which is 1 John 1, 9. Lord, forgive me of that. I'm exhaling my sin, and I'm inhaling your forgiveness and your cleansing from all unrighteousness. I'm now in a position where you see Christ in me. And then we move on. And like a little child, sometimes there's two steps forward and one step back. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Babies aren't, babies aren't, designed to run marathons at three years old. Agreed? But a 26-year-old man who still walks like a baby, handicapped. So it's a move forward. But the victory is yours now. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of sanctification. Same prayer that I pray in my own life. And if this is something on this particular Easter day that you want to mark in your Bible, on this day, I want to have short accounts with God. I'm going to confess my sins, and I know, Lord, when I do, He's going to forgive me of my sins, but He's also instantaneously going to place you in the position of a loved, beloved Son who is sanctified, who He accepts your offer, who is cleansed from all unrighteousness. And it is yours for the asking. And it is yours for the keeping, which is what we're going to talk about next week as I send these uh, emails out. Amen? Let me pray.
Father, your word is so true. And Lord, I know in my own life that I spend a lot of my time judging your word by my own experience. Or like Abraham, what I think makes sense to me in my mind. Eleazar seemed like a good choice, but you had something far better. Even Hagar, you know, that's kind of a loophole there, but you had something far better. Lord, I know that you want us to trust you. And I know, Lord, that we're so ingrained with this world and our own pride and that living in the Laodicean church age in which we do, it's so hard, at least for me, it's so hard to yield everything to you. Not that I don't trust you, but that I don't think you're going to do things the way I want them done. And Lord, I pray that you don't, because your word says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags to you, that our mind and our heart are deceitfully wicked compared to you. And you are God, you are sovereign, you are everything, and you've chosen to live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you take our bodies now? Would you literally take control of our thought life? Would you let every thought that we have funnel through your righteousness so whatever is pure and holy and of good repute and praiseworthy, the things that glorify you, we let us think and dwell and live on those things and those things only? And Lord, when we allow an evil thought in or a prideful thought or an unforgiving thought or a lustful thought, Lord, would you immediately convict us of that so that we can confess that sin and then be restored to fellowship with you by having you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Lord, in my own life, the words that I say, Lord, would you control my mouth? Would you control our, our mouth here so the only things that come out are not things that build us up or defame Lord, but they're things that just glorify you. Same words that we speak among each other should be the same words we would speak if you were standing in the crowd. Lord, would you teach us to do that? The things that we see, the things that we hear, Lord, the things that we touch, where we go, who we hang around with, who we align our life with, who we want to follow, who, who our heroes are. Would you sanctify all of that and only do things in our life that you would do with your body. Because, Holy Spirit, we want to give that to you now. Our thoughts, our future. Whatever you have chosen for us is satisfactory for us. If it's riches, thank you. If it's poverty, thank you. Because it's all about you. Holy Spirit, would you take complete control of our lives? Would you convict me and those here of areas of our life that we've been sinful, would you allow us to confess those and would you allow us to be cleansed from that unrighteousness? And Lord, when we mess up, when we kick you off the throne to sit on the throne for just a momentary pleasure, Lord, would you immediately convict us of that? Let us repent of that and receive your forgiveness and receive your cleansing from all unrighteousness and move forward in the light of day with you. Holy Spirit, it's yours. Would you take it? Would you teach us how to maintain it? And would you make everything that we do coming from the mind of Christ and not our own mind? And I will thank you, and I will write this day down, this resurrection day of 2021 is the day that we have vowed to receive victory from you over our sins. 
And I will thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.